City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, you're in City Limits on 3CR and I'm Meg Kimber and I'm here with Zeb. How are you, Zeb? Good, yeah. No tea today because no Kevin, but (laughs) we'll survive. (laughs) Just really not very organised unless (laughs) Kevin's here. Yeah. Also, I drank my tea this morning before I left, so. Yeah, me too. I did get some tea into me, so. Yeah, as long as we're a little bit caffeinated. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Gee. Yeah, it's a bit tricky to get back into the swing of things I know. after the lockdown. I know. I think everyone's feeling it. I think in Melbourne, this lockdown has tipped people over the edge. <laughs> I might just be talking about myself, but yeah. No, no, no. I definitely, yeah. I definitely feel that. Yeah. Well, we're going to get a little bit of um, uh, kind of forest medicine in a way, perhaps. We'll be talking to two campaigners from two different um, forest blockades. One in Victoria at the Erinundra Plateau. Yep. And uh, another campaigner from our um, sister state across the sea <laughs> yes. of Tasmania, where we'll be speaking with Scott, who's a campaigner with the Tarkine um, campaign there. Yeah. Yeah. You're from Tassie, aren't you? I am. Yes. And Hobart side or Launceston side? I'm from the south. Okay. The yeah. south of the south. <laughs> and um, I have been to the Tarkine when I first moved back to uh, Hobart after living on the mainland for for about seven years. Mm-hmm. I um, volunteered with the Wilderness Society and went to the Tarkine with them. Amazing. And uh, we did some citizen science and measured some tall trees um nice yeah that was was like 2010 people were kind of starting to talk about carbon sequestration yeah okay yeah did you study that as well when you oh looking at a little bit but it was a long time ago now Mm. yeah it's pretty cool it's cool to kind of like i i think there's um sometimes it's and doesn't capture the whole picture to talk about a forest's value simply in the fact that it holds carbon yeah because it's so much more complex and diverse and interconnected than that an yeah. ecosystem but um yeah i think sometimes i wonder if it's a bit of a capitalist way of talking but sometimes that helps people to understand the value yeah it's an interesting toss-up between kind of um conceding to some of the capitalist rhetoric in order to convince mm-hmm. people that yeah. uh, these things have value, mm. uh, but then also trying to maintain the fact that, like... They have things, value yeah. whether or not they have financial value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I think that's part of the the journey is that a lot of people, like some of these places, are a bit difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, you Maybe you need to have your own car or you need to know uh, other people who are going out that way, perhaps. And um, could be a little bit intimidating if you're going to spend much time there. But um, like Erinundra, for example, is I think about five hour drive from, from Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah. And I think a lot of um, industries that exploit nature get away with it in some part because 
it's out of sight and out of mind. Yes. And so whatever they say about it can be just people like, well, that's maybe true, you know, like yeah. we log, like they say, they oh, we log the forest, but we replant it. And yeah, you don't necessarily have a picture of, of what mm-hmm. that means. Mm-hmm. And um, as you were saying before, like you need access to a car and, and whatnot to, mm. to see these places and mm. not everyone has the opportunity to... Mm. Um, to see them and I think there is an aspect of being able to like be in that environment it does yeah like add to the mm. urgency mm, it does um, yeah yeah which is why like uh, it's really great to be able to support campaigners on 3CR and on a show like City Limits because um, like whether they're forest campaigners or community campaigners or public housing campaigners um, definitely in the forest campaigns it can be really tough and personally hard to see places that you love and that you've spent a lot of time in be um, destroyed and be logged. Mm. And uh, people keep going with that because they are passionate about it and it's good to try to do what we can from our urban environment (laughs) (laughs) to support and amplify those voices of the people who are making those efforts. Yeah. Yeah. And and telling that true story about what what it's like on the ground, which you just don't hear in a lot of the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, a little bit of a little bit of a, a rant there to start us off, and we <laughs> love a good rant. We're going to go to our first guest at about quarter past twenty past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering if you've read or seen or heard anything in the news this week that you think might be interesting. Yeah, well, speaking of forests and logging, there was some news from. Um, well, I found it through Friends of the Earth, so mm. I'm sure it's already been talked about on 3CR. No harm um, reiterating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a there's a campaign at Friends of the Earth, the Strasleki Koala campaign. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And they are also focusing on there's uh, the Alberton West State Forest, which it's in South Gippsland, uh, and it's a new area that Vic forests have decided to focus on mm. for a bit of mm-hmm. good old logging mm-hmm. that they love to do mm. um and so local residents have, have protested um starting this week uh, i'm pretty sure um and um you can support the campaign i'm pretty sure if you go to friends of the earth uh their melbournefo.org.au mm. website you can go there and see how to support it because there's a lot of um important endangered species there um the powerful owl the Mm. uh, i can't remember the other ones but there's definitely going to be important Mm. Uh, i mean that's another thing that we'll probably get onto a little bit when we um, Mm -hmm. talk with our two guests today but uh there's a sort of way that people have been trying to stop (laughs) logging is to take advantage of like whether they're an endangered species in the area that um, Mm -hmm. need protecting and it's another interesting way that we sort of had to like use this quite arbitrary measure Mm. of like oh there are this many uh, of this species in this particular locality Mm -hmm. so you can't log here yeah um it doesn't do anything to address the bigger picture issue of the fact that um that the, it, this kind of resource extraction is unsustainable. Yeah. 
the like, like cumulative exactly effect of it. yeah and just going somewhere else where there's like none of this particular animal is not going to solve the problem yeah mm-hmm. yeah um other news uh, if only we had Kevin <laughs> to provide endless. <laughs> One of us should have stream. gone to his house and picked up a pile of yeah. Herald Sun clippings. But I did see um, fairly recently that the World Heritage Committee had agreed to not place the Great Barrier Reef on the endanger list. Did you see that? Oh, I didn't. Um, according to the Guardian, um, the Great Barrier Reef will not be placed on a list of World Heritage Sites in danger after a global lobbying effort from Australia against the proposed listing. And the 21-country World Heritage Committee on Friday ignored a scientific assessment from the United Nations Science and Culture Organisation, UNESCO, that the reef was clearly in danger from a climate change, um, from climate change and so should be placed on the list. And it... Um, well, UNESCO will instead be asked to carry out a mission to the 2,300-kilometre reef in the coming months and Australia will need to send a progress report to the agency on February 2022. Yep. Um, yeah. Wow, that's – I just – I shouldn't be surprised by these things, but every time I'm like, how yeah. – I understand why the Australian government would be trying to lobby yeah. to – I mean – I, I don't understand, yeah. but I understand. <laughs> from the mentality of where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. but I, I did have like this background assumption that, oh, surely the committee will well, see through exactly. that or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope. It's disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing. Well, uh, there, I did find a little bit of good news um, story, uh, which is there's a lot of news about um, batteries and solar solar power storage mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. at the moment going on there's the big battery that's like um you know one of those tesla elon musk thingies mm-hmm. that has just been i think it's i'm not sure what the terminology was but basically it's nearly ready to go okay um <laughs> but there's also a melbourne council um are planning a citywide community battery network, mm. uh, which sounds like a good idea. It's uh, So it's a network of coordinated community batteries that are going to be installed um, at different council sites across the city mm. uh, with a potential capacity of 5 megawatts by 2024. Mm. Um, and they're like solar-powered and you can use them to – is that – what is the – Yeah, I – so – I am not entirely up to scratch on how these things work, but mm-hmm. I think it's like um, they're there to store the excess solar, pa- solar mm-hmm. power that's produced and mm. then like release it at whatever time right. the, the energy market needs it. Yeah, cool. Um, that's probably a very bad explanation. <laughs> so if any listeners out here. there... heard it here from our resident <laughs> yeah. solar power expert, Zeb. <laughs> <laughs> um that's cool that's good I think it's interesting like a lot of councils are actually so much more forward thinking and progressive on many of these issues than the state or federal governments are so yeah it's kind of interesting yeah difference between those different levels of governance Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. I mean yeah it's also just an indication that um these things are becoming more economically viable true um yeah yeah um there's I think there's like a lot of stuff in councils I've actually a friend of mine and maybe should be interested in coming on the show sometime actually um 
is working on a project with um, one of the councils about the circular uh, a circular economy. So um, be good to talk to her and find out yeah. more about it because I actually don't know much about it. But um, yeah, like different kind of trying to um, support people to have a different kind of economy is like a really good thing because in the end that's what most of this stuff comes down to like you can use solar power but you still have to um extract the resources Mm -hmm. to build the equipment that will um store and generate and and capture solar energy and then our energy consumption in a a country like australia is so high compared to the global levels that um you know, we you can be as smart as you want, but we also have to look at how we actually run our economies and how we work and how we um, transport ourselves. And yeah, otherwise we're going to keep on trying to take more than is sustainable. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, like comparing this project to the the giant like mega battery that. Um, Tesla's mm. built in um, South Australia. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, that's a good thing that um, that we have that storage that we need. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, why does it have to be coming from mm. a billionaire? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, why did why do exactly. we need that? And then what is what will that mean? Yeah, for uh, power in the future and and access to power and like yeah. Uh, billionaires getting even more money (laughs) and using it to build things to go into space oh yes yeah what are your thoughts on like funding for space travel because i i think space is really cool but (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually really freaked out by space it's like a claustrophobic person's nightmare yeah okay i actually know someone that is it's like the opposite they have a fear of uh, I don't know how to Being say out, this. Out in spaces. Or, yeah, in like yeah. really open, but like yeah. not not like agoraphobia or anything, yeah. but like kind of like falling into the sky or something. <laughs> Are they scared of space as well, like me? Because I Probably. think I'm, I'm not maybe scared of space as much. I'm scared of like spaceships. Being, yeah, yeah, being in a rocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really really doesn't appeal to me at all but yeah I it's I have really mixed feelings because I think it was really cool that um uh I think her name was Wally there was a woman who was denied um being able to go to space as a young woman Mm -hmm. uh, because of her gender yeah and who then went to space for the first time and um I just I I'm sad that it happened because of Jeff Bezos because I have a lot of personal like problems with him. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of like kind of other parts of my life where I've been, you know, wanted to do the work about about like not being ageist and not being sexist. Yeah, um, yeah I think that 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 is great, and I always love it when I see older people fulfilling uh, their goals and ambitions because. Um, yeah, a lot of the time the story about older people is that they're just not um, not capable and a drain on society. And especially with, like you can see with COVID, the story about like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just old people that are dying or stuff like that. And I'm sick of being at home kind of thing. So that's cool. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, not I guess Jeff. there are worse things that the 
billionaire men could be having pissing competitions about. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I guess there is, yeah. But yeah, it still is troubling. <laughs> yeah. Concerning. But we should actually take a break. We're coming up to um yeah, we're getting close to time to uh, speak to our first guest. So I'm going to play a song by Sal Kimber and the Rolling Wheel. <laughs> On a train in the early morning light I shuffled down the aisles With a suitcase by my side And I took a window seat And I looked upon the door Found that it was so blue As we pulled away so slow I felt that all along it As the steam power grew And someone smoked your back heat Your sand was on Beats against the rhythm of the tracks 
His aura called your dance and your grace and your back And did you touch my hand as we entered Castle City Limits on 3CR and we are joined by Scott who's a campaigner with the Bob Brown Foundation um, working to uh, campaign against a tailings dam that's being proposed for the Tarkan region in Tasmania. Thanks for joining us Scott. Uh, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. It's, it's very wet down here so I'm, I'm pleased to be indoors. <laughs> <laughs> well, the rainforest in Tasmania can be beautiful in the in the wet. I'm I'm a Tasmanian myself, born um, and raised in Hobart, so I've had a little bit of time in the forest, and it's really wonderful. Sometimes in the rain, isn't it? Look, it is. It's sometimes at its best in the rain, provided you you're dry and warm, and you can um, yeah uh, go out and experience it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's truly a beautiful place. And um, so maybe you could start by for any of our listeners who don't know what or where the Tarkine is, giving us an idea of that? Well, look, the Tarkine's an area in northwest Tasmania. Um, it makes up around half a million hectares of of area that, that has been verified as having both national heritage and world heritage values. Um, about a bit over a third of the Tarkine is, is cool temperate rainforest, and it's, in fact, the, the largest temperate rainforest left in Australia and one of the last remaining in the world. And so it, it's incredibly important for that aspect, but also uh, has huge areas of heathland and, and button grass um, moving out towards the coastal terrain where we have um, significant areas of Aboriginal heritage. And in fact, what the Australian Heritage Council uh, suggests is the, the largest concentrations of, of Aboriginal heritage sites in the country. And so um, it has, has a whole range of values and is home to over 60 rare, threatened and endangered species. Mm, a really important place, especially for the uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage as well, as you say. Um, and so what is, what's proposed for this area? Well, look, unfortunately we've been under a whole range of threats for a long period. Those sites on the coast have been at risk from um, four-wheel drive activity and, and um, we've had a state government and it's only just um, started making the right noises about restricting four-wheel drive access on the coastal areas. Um, having having planned to reverse the decision of a previous government to reopen those areas to four-wheel drives. We've had the logging threat over many years where um, our state government logging agency 
still progressing with logging these ancient rainforests, um, mostly for wood chip, in fact, mm. um, and, and seeing those areas um, permanently destroyed. The rainforests don't recover from that sort of logging. Mm. Um, and we're, we're, of course, seeing the, um, the, the threat from mining companies who, who it seems every time, you know, every decade or so when the, there's a short-term spike in the iron ore prices or the tin prices, the mining companies all line up ready to start tearing holes in those rainforest areas. Mm. And and what we're faced with right now is a company that has a mine outside of the Tarkine um, on the southern side of the Pyman River but, but has not had any conflict with the conservation movement and um, you know, could, could have gone about its, uh, its processes completely unhindered. Mm. Uh, but it's chosen to plan its new tailings dam on the northern side of the Pyman River inside the Tarkine rainforests and he wants to put a 140 hectare um, toxic heavy metals tailings dam, um, supported by another 145 hectares of infrastructure, um, in that beautiful rainforest area of the Tarkine. And um, we find that's completely unacceptable. And and we've been out there, uh, firstly for 143 days over the um, the summer, where we held out the loggers and the, and the um, the mining company mm. and. Then police arrived and they raided the camp and they moved everybody along and, and made some arrests. And and since then, uh, we, we spent the next um, two months hitting them every day where we would have people turn up on the site, lock themselves to machines or lock themselves to gates or, or prevent access to the site. And after 71 arrests and 400 people participating in those protests, We've, we've earned ourselves a, a reprieve. And wow. so for the moment, the machines are off the site, but the threat hasn't gone away. That's so, I mean, yeah, that's that's great effort um, from all of the activists there. Um, and it's just another example of how powerful direct action can be. Um, why do you think the uh, company has chosen to pursue this within the Tarkine? Well, I think the simple question is, is it, it's a cheaper answer. Right. Um, tailings dams have been, I guess, the, the staple of mining projects over the 20th century, where uh, after you've removed all of the, the metals from the the ore that's been brought to the surface, um, you're left with a sulphide deposit, which is, um, when combined with the oxygen in the air, starts to form sulfuric acid. And so they, they put these um, sulphide heavy metals tailings into... A, a tailings dam, which, when, when covered in, in a couple of metres of water, um, reduces the speed of that, that chemical process to mm. form the sulfuric acid. And, and unfortunately, what we're left with, though, is a, a huge um, damaged landscape that's full of this toxic uh, material, which doesn't, doesn't entirely prevent the acidification. It just slows it somewhat. And so often what we're left with is long after the mine's gone, we're left with this... This ongoing process of acidification that's leaching out into the surrounding environment. Yeah. World's best practice now is to move to a a different process, which which filter presses the um, the tailings into a, a a dry cake, and then they combine that with concrete to refill the voids left from previous mining, the underground voids. Mm. And so this is the process that's available to them. They're, um, even if they want to go with the old dirty process, mm. there is other sites outside of the Tarkine that that are available to them. But the simple answer is here: they've 
done the numbers, then it's it's cheaper to pipe this stuff across the Pyman River and dump it into a rainforest, mm. which unfortunately our, our state government is going to give them free access to. Yeah. Um, and the Tarkine is a... I think I've, people might assume that a lot of Tasmania is... Uh, I, I know, you know, the term is thrown around by logging and mining companies, this idea of a lot of Tasmania being locked up, in, in air quotes, Um and the Tarkine is not part of the World Heritage Area, is it? It's a kind of a mixed-use um, uh, forest, is that right? Yeah, unfortunately that's, that's totally true. While there's parts of the Tarkine that have been added to various reserves under the state reserve system here, mm. um, the majority of those reserves still allow for logging and mining. Mm. And so they're, they're reserves by name, but not, not by um, function. And so our campaign has been to see this area um, put into a, a national park um, to have the nomination made to, to see this area finally World Heritage listed, as it so you know, deeply deserves. Mm-hmm. And, and our third aim, of course, is to have this area return to Aboriginal ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, we, we do come up against that argument in the community that so much of Tasmania is locked up. And um, I guess I, I bristle whenever I hear that argument because too, um, yeah. national parks aren't locked up. National parks are places where you can take your kids and your mm. grandkids. Um, what's locked up is the areas behind the logging gates and the mining gates that the public never gets to see mm. and they don't get to see the destruction that's going on to their wild and special place. So true. And um sounds like the community has really um, mobilised to respond to this threat. Um what, now that there's a bit of a reprieve, what kind of things are you planning next and, and how might people be able to get involved? Well, look, right now we've got people camped in the middle of the area that, that would be the, the tailing stand. Right. Um, we've got a tree sit in place and we've got a ground crew on the ground conducting uh, citizen science out in that area um, to make sure that the you know, values of this area are well documented and that we're not forced to rely on the on the company's um, consultants mm. um, who, who to date have been largely dismissive of any environmental values on the site. Um, we've been recording the endangered um, mask owl um, of an evening with, with sound recorders. We've been um, you know, uh, putting out fauna cameras and, and tracking Tasmanian devil populations, spotted tail quail populations and, and doing scat surveys. Um, and this weekend we've got a, a large um, event where we're inviting the public to join us and, and walk back into those rainforests. We've, we've now seen the machines leave and we're calling that event the Reclaim the Rainforest um, oh, nice. walk. And so we're, we're hoping to get a, a large number of people from the public to come along and, and take part in, in taking back those rainforests that the, the company have tried to take from us. <laughs> that's great. And that's on Sunday, is that right? Uh, that all sounds really good. Um, we'll let you go in a minute, Scott, but I'm just wondering if you had anything else that you might be able to add to the um, the points that you made about um, Aboriginal ownership and um, the cultural heritage values of the site, if there's anything you can say about your uh, work with the um, Tasmanian Aboriginal community on this issue. Yeah, look, our, our partnership with the Tasmania Aboriginal community, particularly through the Tasmania Aboriginal Centre mm. and the Tasmania Aboriginal Land Council, has been really important part of our campaign. Um, this area is is of great importance to the 
the Aboriginal people in Tasmania, and um, our our view is that it you know, it was looked after for over forty thousand years by the Aboriginal people of this island, and um, the best best hands to be looking after it into the future are, are back with with those Aboriginal owners, and so. Um, our foundation and, and many of our allies have made commitments that we, you know, we want to see this area return to Aboriginal ownership, and um, we've partnered with the Aboriginal community over the last decade to um, progress that that campaign. Mm. Could be a really um, important site for understanding Tasmanian Aboriginal culture um, as it as it continues and ha- as it has been in the past. And um, and lastly, on that note, and the idea of um, you said before um, reclaiming that forest space and uh, Zeb and I were talking at the top of the show about how a lot of these um, activities, extractive activities happen out of sight, out of mind. Um, any advice for anyone listening, perhaps um, Melbourne listeners or Victorian listeners who want to visit this part of uh, Tasmania and um, and get to know it better? Any advice for them? Look, my first bit of advice is do it. <laughs> the, um, the borders reopen. Um, you, you should come down and see this amazing place. Um, for, for listeners in Melbourne, this this is as much your rainforest as it is ours. Um, you can fly from Melbourne to the the Burnie Airport in an hour, and another hour in a hire car, and you're in the middle of the beautiful rainforest. And so, you know, I like to say the Tarkine. It's two hours from Melbourne. Um, <laughs> it's closer to Melbourne than it is to the Hobart. Um, <laughs> True. Um, yeah, definitely come down and see it, and see these amazing coastal areas full of Aboriginal heritage. See the rainforest and the, and the richness of the life that's existing in those. Um, but in the meantime, while you're in lockdown, there's things you can do to help. You know, um, you can contact your local federal MP um, and your state senators, and, and tell them that, that this area should be protected as a uh, World Heritage Area and you want them as your representative to be speaking in the Parliament for a, a nomination for World Heritage for the Tarkine. Yes. And, and you know, sometimes people get a little bit intimidated by the science and the economics and, and those arguments. And at the end of the day, your local MP works for you. Um, you. You just need to be telling them that as your voice in that Parliament you want them speaking um, for protection of the Tarkine. And, um, you know, and if enough people make those um, representations to their local members, then, then that voice will be heard in the parliament. Great. Thank you so much for that. It's good to feel like there's something that can be done. And I, I personally hope to be there next time I'm in Tassie. So thanks for joining us today, Scott. No worries. Thank you. That was... The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them, Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness, The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews, and many more. July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter.
sound of the breath fades with the light Think about loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Under the Milky Way 
Mm, that's the song for all the millionaires in space, Under the Milky Way by Jimmy Little. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and back on City Limits on 3CR, we've got Chris Schuringer on the line. Um, she's cam- a gecko campaigner in East Gippy. How are you going, Chris? Okay, we might be having some tech issues there. I'll give you a little intro into what we're going to be talking about. Uh, unless uh, we might just go to a song to figure things out. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Okay, take two. Hi, Chris, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. Yes, we can hear you. Great. How are you going? Yeah, really good. How about you? Yeah, good, thank you. Are you out um, in East Giffey at the moment? Uh, No, I'm at my my place. I'm just a few hours outside of Melbourne. Um, Ah, Amazing. Um, So we've called you in to get... Basically, an update on the Gecko campaign. Um, mm-hmm. So, what's your involvement there? Um, I so I work work for Green Green Environment Centre as a as a campaigner. Um, I've been working there for a couple of years now. Um, I suppose since um, since the air and under blockade that we kind of supported out out in East Gippsland, it was four months of um, of community community action, which included. Direct action, citizen science, whole bunch of whole bunch of folks going together to to protest logging um, in a really really important unburnt area of forest um, in the Arunachal Plateau, and yeah, so there was a really incredible result there. Uh, a couple of the area, the areas where the protests were have now been taken off the logging schedule, uh, and Environment East Gippsland have launched a court case to try and to try and um, protect those areas, which is which is really exciting. Amazing. Uh, so what are Gecko focusing on uh, in Erinundra at the moment? Um, at the moment, the, the logging machines have, have left the area and it's quite cold and wet there through through the winter times and, and hard hard for them to log in those areas. Um, and so we're kind of keeping an eye and just getting ready for when they inevitably go back in spring and summer. There was recently a new timber release plan put out by the government logging agency Vic Forest, and the timber release plan is basically it comes out every year and it adds additional areas, um, yeah, on, onto the schedule okay. to, to be logged. So yeah, 
Yeah, and is, that's technically open for comment, isn't it? People could go and uh, make submissions to that or not. Um, yeah, it is open. It is open for comment. The, the frustrating thing is, is that I don't think any areas have been taken off or changed based on based on public comment. So it's kind of a very tokenistic right. sort, of, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> sort of process. Um, and that's why things like you know the direct action stuff is so is so successful because uh, a lot of the time processes that, that that we go through with government don't get the results that, that we want and so we do have to go in there and actually physically stop stop what's happening mm-hmm. um, and really put the pressure on and even though it's really important to have to have our voices heard and to say that you know we're not we're not okay with this lobbying we don't want it to go ahead and really express community concern and 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 that you know they want to see these forests protected we don't want we don't want the logging anymore it's really really important um, but yes Sometimes those processes can be can be a bit frustrating. Yeah, um, and we got news from Fiona York about uh, there's another government process going on the major event review about the impact of the fires on the regional forest agreement. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whether you uh, can talk much to what they've said about that. Yeah, so basically the the regional forest agreements their agreements between state and federal governments which give logging an exemption from federal environment laws and they were being they, they were 20-year agreements but last year they've rolled it over and it's a 10 it's a 10-year agreement so it'll end on that 2030 date uh the problem is is that they were rolled over just after the bushfires and they didn't have take into consideration the impacts and there was no real changes to logging you know, to consider to consider the devastating impacts of the fires, mm, and so okay. now they're they've but they've put in a new clause which says, oh, if there's a massive event which is going to affect you know the terms of this agreement, then then we're going to look at the agreement and, and consider that, those impacts. And so they're looking at the impacts of the fires. The issue is is that you know it's been more than a year and logging has still gone ahead in areas which are really important for wildlife after the fires, and so. And also the the recommendations that come out of the review aren't legally enforceable and they don't actually have mm. to act on, on the recommendations, which is quite frustrating. But we're still really encouraging people to make submissions and get involved so that, you know, we're sending a really clear message after the fires, forests and wildlife need, need protection. Awesome. And we can get that link and um, put it in the show notes so that people, listeners can go and help out with that. Awesome. Um, another thing that Meg and I were chatting about in the intro is uh, using sort of surveys of endangered species uh, in areas to um, prevent logging from being able to happen there. Uh, and we were sort of uh, well, I wanted to ask you, like, how that kind of works and, and what legislation that takes advantage of, uh, and is that going on at the moment? Yeah, so for for many years, geckos used citizen science and, and surveying for wildlife to protect areas of forest. There are some, some laws in East Gippsland which give species protection. Um, a lot of those laws are pretty old and outdated, and so... And, and definitely could be strengthened, but we kind of use whatever we can to, to protect these areas. So, for example, one of the prescriptions is that if you find more than 10 greater gliders in a one-kilometre 
area um, or one kilometre line, then then you can get 100 hectares of, of forest protected. And so that's one of the tools that we use uh, to, to protect areas. But the the issue is, is that often um, uh, the, the government has to sort of be really pushed for, for the protection areas to cover where the species are actually are actually found. What we've found in the last year is that some of the reports that we've put in, uh, the government either isn't putting in the protection areas and saying that they don't need to put in put in the zones and are just flat out refusing to, okay. or they're putting in zones that you know don't aren't even going to be logged or they're along areas that, that were just never going to be logged, mm. like streams or they're outside the coop or that kind of thing. So we're still having to fight to to get those areas protected. But, yeah. Mm, more tactic. frustrations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, it is fun. It is fun going out and doing and doing citizen science and we regularly kind of have um, citizen science camps um, out, out in the forest where we teach people how to survey for threatened species and, yeah. Yeah, so people can go and get involved if they want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's very exciting. Like actually being out in the forest, getting to see threatened wildlife—it's—it's it's really cool. Some process. Yeah, we were also talking about that um, before about uh, both the like barriers to being able to uh, access and, and uh, get to these beautiful places in Australia, uh, but also how like uh, seeing seeing places in real life really like uh, makes a difference to your activism. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds you, yeah, what you're, what you're fighting for. And, yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah. It's a nice thing to do. It's a long... But, yeah, understandably, East Gippsland, it's, it's a long way away, especially for folks in Melbourne. I mean, it's a six, six seven-hour drive, but mm. definitely worth it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, another question um, that we were talked a little bit touched a little bit on um on the other campaign that we were talking about the the Tarkine campaign um and I wondered um whether this was also happening in East Gippsland uh whether the sort of anti-logging groups um are working with traditional owners and um what that looks like and what um whether there is any sort of prospect of some sort of um uh I'm not sure, like, what native title uh, sort of status things are going on or whether there's any other kind of routes to go down there. Um, but do you have anything to say on that? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, can't, I probably can't speak, speak to native title or treaty or that or, yeah. or those, those kind of processes, but I suppose um, Gecko has long-standing relationships with, um, with some of the Bidwell families um, from East Gippsland, uh, I mean, so-called East Gippsland, and um, yeah, recently there was sort of uh, some some progress there, in that there was there were some logging coops that were scheduled in in the Bidwell Reserve, and it's one of the only areas that actually recognises Bidwell people and the Bidwell Nation. So, um, and. What happened was was that Bidwell elders actually wrote to the government to say that you know you need to take these coops coops off the mm-hmm. off the logging schedule and they were removed, which was mm-hmm. which was really really um, which was really great and a really awesome uh, first step. But I suppose as well, um, 
along with, you know, other tra- traditional homogeneous gypsum like Gunakone folks and, and, and Monero as well, that there is no consent from mm-hmm. <laughs> from from those traditional owners for, for logging to go ahead. It's a very tokenistic pro- process. And I think um, a lot of work... Yeah, really needs to be needs to be done in terms of, you know, the government is saying that they're in treaty processes and 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 trying to, you know, really um, make progress or work with with indigenous people. But while logging is going ahead, and given like the cultural significance of, of these forests for for traditional owners, yeah, it's 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 a really um, frustrating process. I mean. I don't know if you guys were aware, but there was a few years ago um, a, a bunch of um, uh, traditional owners from across Victoria in, in areas that, that were being logged, mm-hmm. uh, Tangarong, Gunaikerne, um, Jabarong. They wrote a letter to the government to, to say, you know, we don't, we don't give permission for logging to go ahead on country. And it was a really powerful and really important message. And they never received a response mm. from from the Victorian yeah. government. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty disappointing. And yeah, I think much more needs to be done in that space. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Okay, um, we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, but is there anything else that you want to add before we head off? Um, I think if if anyone is is listening, I suppose, and they and they want to get involved with with what we do, um, yeah, you can visit visit our website. It's gecko.org.au and gecko is spelled G-E-C-O. Uh, we're, we've got a mailing list and, and we're, you know, a, a couple of times a month we'll send, we'll send out email updates of how to get involved and if people are interested in doing any of those submissions and stuff, we, we regularly update our um, our website to for people to get involved. Nice. So, yeah. And I'm assuming also that um, there might be sometimes people travelling in between <clears throat> Melbourne and East Gippsland who yeah, there might be a rideshare opportunity for people who, for whom transport is an issue, perhaps? Yeah, 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 definitely. yeah for sure, for sure. Um, you can always get in contact, yeah, get in contact directly. We've got like a contact form and stuff on our website. So, yeah, if people are interested in coming out and they do need a rideshare and stuff like that, yeah, yeah. Awesome. You can try and coordinate for that. Thank awesome. you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show, Chris, and thanks for all the work that you're doing. Um, we might... Thanks for having me and you guys as well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that was Chris from the Gecko Environment Centre. Um, what a great show about um, direct action. I was so heartened to hear about how powerful um, direct action uh, still is and can be. And, of course, um in one of the breaks, Karina and Zeb and I were talking about the Bob Brown Foundation and how it started um, from um, campaigners down from the Human Valley Environment Centre um, receiving the support of Bob Brown after he retired from Parliament and politics. But um, he was always a proud um, direct action campaigner and started his career that way. And um, it's great to see so many people from all different walks of life um, in Tasmania and in Victoria just basically putting themselves on the line and getting in the way, um, which can really work to disrupt uh, extractive, exploitive capitalism in in this in this country. So, power to them and and thanks for all their work. That's it for City Limits this week. Yep. We'll finish up with a song, and then you're going to hear Joe on Anarchist World this week. <laughs> Thank you.
every Tuesday at 9.30pm on 3CR, 8.55am. The Greek Resistance Bulletin brings you news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek. News from the anti-fascist and anti-racist front. And news from actions and political initiatives from below. Κάθε τρίτη βράδυ, 9.30 με 10, στον 3CR 855 AM, η εκπομπή Greek Resistance Bulletin σας παρουσιάζει στα ελληνικά και τα αγγλικά νέα από την Ελλάδα των κινημάτων, νέα από το αντιφασιστικό μέτωπο, νέα για τις δράσεις και τα εγχειρήματα από τα κάτω. Greek Resistance Bulletin, σπάζοντας το μονοπόλιο της ενημέρωσης. You've been to a 3CR podcast. Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.